Wasn't that what was brilliant about it? Sorry, you missed Cersei. Wow. One, two, three, four, five, six. Um, Nicole. Yes. <laughs> Nicole. Yes. Yeah. Uh, not cool. Okay. Uh, how are we liking the prelude? Almost. Four Almost done. Four more books. Oh my goodness. All right. So I guess we can't really get to book thirteen today. That means there's no. We haven't even gotten. We haven't I know, about but <laughs> we yes we have. <laughs> We've talked a bit about book one. <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> I'm not saying you. <laughs> okay, why are you smiling? We had to do the intimations, though. You agree? You yeah. all agree to that, right? Yeah. And we have finally scratched the surface of the intimation zone. And most people go through their entire lives, um, mighty prophets, seers, blessed that they are, without even scratching the surface of the intimation zone. So there we are, surface scratched, achievement unlocked. Um, that, that poem for me is like Robert Frost's poem to past version Yellowwood. The intimation zone? Yeah, where it's just like a history of me being like a dull reader. Um, <laughs> where, where it's like, you know, first with Frost, I'm like, oh, yes, I'll take the less traveled path. And mm-hmm. then, like, a few years later, I'm like, oh, I now see how that's a mistake. And it's sad. <laughs> and okay. now I see how they're all the same. And, uh, and how it's the same with the situations. Okay, it's why? A, why? Why? Well, first, it's like I never could imagine his despair, like, where there's a flood the visionary glee. I'm like, that makes no sense. Like, how could the world. How could you ever not see how amazing you were? Oh, okay. Yeah. And then it went downhill. Well, and then it's like, oh, wow, now I realize that. Yeah. yeah and then later, you know, reading it more, it's like, oh, but you, like, return through poetry and philosophy. Okay. And so it's just like, so that's taking, a good thing. like, a decade. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so do you remember the last line of Two Roads Diverge? I'll, I'll be telling this with a sigh. Yeah, that's not the last line. Mm. Um, You're into it. And I, I took the one less travel, and that made all the difference. Right. Where's he getting that from Wordsworth? What's he quoting? Or the, oh, quoting? the difference to me. Oh, the difference oh, to me. I never, I can't believe he just. <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's Frost in a Wordsworth. The difference mode. to me, which one is that? That's a Lucy poem? Yes. She, is in her, she dwelt among the untrodden ways. Um, that's great. Right? Ariel wrote about the Lucy poems. So um, she's in her grave and all the difference for me. Do you guys know the Frost poem Birches? Uh, one, one of his totally, utterly great poems. Um, it's about, um, it's actually an amazing poem. It's about seeing birches that are bent as he's driving. And um, he says, well, the famous line from the poem is its last line, which is, um, um, uh, I would still like to be a swinger of birches, but it's that's not the best line. And one one thing that Frost and Wordsworth are actually really good at is not having their last lines. I mean, sometimes and often, last lines are the best lines of a poem. It's what a poem is working towards. But sometimes what you get, and it's really hard to do this as a poet, is last lines that are actually not the not the climactic or best lines of a poem. That is that that 
if the climax comes a little bit earlier, as it often does in Frost and Wordsworth, then the power of the last line is to some extent in its anticlimax. Um, and the idea being that, that the moment of, those diz of that dizzy rapture, the climactic moment, is no more. And the, so what you get is something like, oh, the difference to me, or um, that has made all the difference. There's a great um, Browning poem called Memorabilia, which is, has its first line is its most famous line. Ah, did you once see Shelley Plain? So Browning was 10 when Shelley died, but Browning was obsessed with Shelley. So we did a little Browning earlier in this class when we looked at the lost leader. Um, Shelley was the person who never betrayed Browning as far as he was concerned and uh, was the great poet who Browning adored and revered. And so he has this poem, Memorabilia, that is things uh, to, uh, something like souvenirs, but also something like relics of someone, memorabilia. You buy memorabilia to, at a souvenir shop, but that's because it is the memorabilia are objects that belong to the place that they memorialize. And you'll have memorabilia of people. In this case, um, something like you could have a lock of hair um, or um, a button that the person used or letters that they wrote or something like that. Those would all be memorabilia. So the one that Browning wrote, um, the famous poem called Memorabilia, goes, Did you once see Shelley Plain? I don't know if I have it by heart, but I'll try. Did you once see Shelley Plain? And did he stop and speak with you? And did you answer him again? How strange it seems and new. Interestingly, although we didn't read that part of Paradise Lost, that's actually a line from Paradise Lost. Strange point and new is what the rebel angels, what Satan is talking to the rebel angels about. The idea that they are no longer, that they've been displaced um, by the creation of the Son of God. So, how strange it seems and new, says Browning. And then he goes on addressing this person who saw Shelley if you can imagine it. That's what he can't imagine. Did you once see Shelley Plain? And did he stop and speak with you? And did you answer him again? How strange it seems and new. But you were living before that. And also, you were living after. And the memory I started at, my starting, that is, I was startled by, the memory I started at, my starting moves your laughter. So this guy who once met Shelley is amused that Browning is so astonished that he was talking to someone who'd met Shelley. And then he says, um, this is the part that, I can, that, that I'm not going to get right, I crossed a land... I have it if you want. Oh, okay, read it. Go for it. <laughs> I crossed a moor with a A moor, thank you. And a certain use in the, in the world, no doubt. Yet a hand's breadth of it shines alone, mid the blind miles round about. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so just to summarize, so he then tells a little story of his own, which is that he once crossed a moor. It probably belonged to someone. It belonged to a wider world, a certain use in the world, no doubt, um, maybe for farming, maybe for peat, um, for peat mining, um, for fires. But So he crossed it. It had a certain use. But there's a hand's breadth 
that's the only thing he remembers mid the blank miles is that it mid the yeah, blank miles mile. right so that's the same word blank we've been looking at in Wordsworth blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized or in Milton for the book of knowledge fair presented with a universal blank yeah is it the same blank Yes, it is, exactly. Pain has an element of blank. Yeah, it doesn't know where it begins or ends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something that loses all um, individuality. And the, it, it, it's not, it loses specificity. And the loss of specificity in Dickinson and in Milton and in Wordsworth is um, something like an account of, uh, it, it universe, uh, generalizes. Um, when you lose specificity, you lose whatever it is that um, differentiates in um, the sense of giving, giving locality, giving, to quote Shakespeare, local habitation and a name to something. And it's as though you're seeing what's below the decoration, the surface, um, what earth fills her lap with, um, pleasures of her own. That is, sure, here's a nice place. And you can see this nice place, and it's, and it's nice. Um, but below it all, beneath it all, is blankness. Um, Beckett uses the word blank in, no, he uses the word ashes, but by ashes he means blankness in Endgame. So, so one day Browning crosses a moor, and it's all blank except for a hand's breadth of it, and the reason for that is... For there I picked up on the heather, and there I put inside my breast a mulch feather, an eagle feather. Well, I forget the rest. So that's the last line. So he saw an eagle feather on this plane. That is, for him, the equivalent of this guy who met Shelley. So he crosses a moor... And one day he sees an eagle feather, a feather that's been molted by an eagle. And it's different from the entire universe, the blank miles roundabout. And this person met Shelley, which would be the same thing. But you were living before that, and also you were living after. So um, for you, it's not a big deal. For me, it's the one memory that I would, it's what I would think about as I died. Is the, is the moment that I met Shelley. So his comparison is that he found this eagle feather. And then the last line, it's like the difference to me, or that has made all the difference. It's a molted feather, an eagle feather. That's what he found. And then, well, what is it? Well, I forget the rest. Yeah. So, um, so hard to write a last line like that, which isn't the culmination of everything. It's like, um, and therefore... Gigi. It's rather, and the poem still isn't over, even though the most important thing it was about is over. And that, in a way, is a Wordsworthian motif, that um, the most important thing is she was alive, and now she's dead. And so the last line of the poem is, with rocks and stones and trees, or, oh, the difference to me, um, or... Um, Twas throwing words away, um, the last moment. And um, what you realize is just that, that 
timing the timing the the narrative arc so that the peak is not at the end um, shows you what a falling off is there at the end and um, I think it, I think it's an amazing thing and um, Frost picks it up from Wordsworth yeah oh, well I didn't bear some story about Frost okay Yeah. No, he wasn't the poetry editor. He may have been there, but. Yeah, yeah, I forgot what he was doing there. And then he got really drunk. Uh huh. Okay. And then the people at the Hewlett told Truman Capote to take John Frost home. So he, like, yeah, basically, he, what is it called? Like when your friends, your friend gets really drunk and you take care of them. Yes. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't be embarrassed by being on either side of that equation. I don't think. It's embarrassing if he dr- if he drove after he drank. Yeah, maybe. So it's like. Yeah. It's a funny pairing. Yeah, it's a very weird. It is. A, it is a weird pairing. So it's like you took care of me. Well, you know that Robert Frost and um, Wallace Stevens had... Was it Frost and Stevens or was it Hemingway and Stevens? Yeah, there's another Frost and Stevens um, story also in well, Key West, but Hemingway and Stevens went rolling down to the beach. Yeah, they got... But uh, Frost on Stevens' book, he, he, or he called Stevens... I think maybe he was talking to Stevens. Like, Stevens, like, how did you like my last book or something? He's like... I was like, fine, brick crack. Yes. And then Stephen yeah. sent him a, his next book, he sent him signed copies some more brick crack. Yes. Yeah. And there's a photo of them actually in Key West. No, no, no. Stephen said, you write about, he was talking to Frost, and he said, Stephen's to Frost, he's like, you write about things. And Frost is like, well, you write brick crack. Brick crack. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they did have some drunken quarrel at Key West, but I don't think they went rolling down to the beach the way Stephen's and Hemingway did. They started wrestling drunk, drunkenly on the boardwalk. That's a Hemingway thing to do. Yeah, it is a Hemingway thing to do, and not a Stevens thing to do. Um, but, um, Stevens was big, though. He was big. Um, but there is a photo of Stevens and Frost at a hotel in Key West, which still exists. And there is now a photo of a reproduction of that photo with, Dan, with my sons, Daniel and Julian, sitting in the exact same spot as Stevens and Frost in the same attitudes as Stevens and Frost. So, um, I like that photo. All right, but no photos of Wordsworth. Actually, there are photos of Wordsworth in, in old age, but he was already dead um, because it was after 1814. Um, all right, so how far into the prelude are we? You have four books left. I'm on, like, book eight. Okay. No, that, it sounds like everyone's behind. That's I'm okay. I'm extremely behind. I have three exams between tomorrow and the day after. So. Okay, so what book are you on? One. 
No, no, no. Zero? Seven. Oh, okay. That's not so bad. That's where we were supposed to be, like... We'll yeah, I know, but that, that, which means I didn't read it all this weekend. Well, you know what it says on the syllabus, which is that we'll do massive catch up on exam day. Oh uh, yeah, okay. inevitably. I believe that's the adverb that I used was inevitably. Mm-hmm. So um, you won't be able to evit it. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> did you finish? Mm-hmm. All right. So see. He's read it before. <laughs> so really? not only has he finished it, he's read it twice. <laughs> Had you read the whole thing before? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I had a teacher in graduate school who was sent to an um, all-girls uh, uh, secondary school when she was um, for high school, uh, boarding school. And uh, they were not allowed to read at night after lights out. Um, or even because, because and they, they, they were only allowed to read for an hour a day because otherwise they'd be getting ahead. So the school was discouraging reading in its students because it was unfair to the other students. And she would have to, she would have to sneak away and read. And if she got caught, she got in, got in trouble. So that's you. Well, Ray Bradbury <laughs> has a quote. He's like, why do children not read these days? And he's like, because we are like, here's some books, read. It's like when I was a kid, the books were behind a glass case, mm-hmm. and if I touched one, I'd get beaten. It's like, <laughs> of course I wanted to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the way a lot of people learned Latin was that the dirty parts were the untranslated parts in a whole lot of uh, 19th century um, school, um, school, school editions. Yeah, and I, in the 18th century class. And not only that, but the dirty parts were also segregated in the back of the book so that if you're reading the uninteresting parts, they were right there, but if you wanted to read the dirty parts, you had to translate them yourself. And, um, but they were all conveniently in the back of the book, so lots and lots and lots of people learned Latin um, in order to read the dirty parts. Um, how far are you, Tafara? Honestly, I don't know where I am, <clears throat> but I remember him meeting a soldier or something. Okay. And then I also remember about how he, um, it was like just reflection, and it was like how books in a library, like how a library is more alive, mm-hmm. because it's like the souls of the writers. Yeah. Yeah, so the dream of the Arab. Yes, and that, I thought that was really, really cool. That's what I am. I don't know where that is. Okay. That's book five. Yeah. Book five. Yeah, that's good. Um, does the footnote tell you about that dream? Is there a footnote on yeah. it? Yeah. What does it say? That it was. You don't remember. No, I have to re. I have to revisit that episode because it, there's like, so much in it. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, Meg, where are you? I am not even sure. I thought about a little bit. Sorry. Honestly, I I'm behind. That's all I know. Okay, everyone's. I know everyone's behind. Ariel. All right. Damn. Whoa. 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 Okay. Look at oh, you. sick burn. <laughs> sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it's really, really, really worth having read, and worth having read. Yeah, it's it, you get your words worth in value. <laughs> what a look! Um, you guys are ready for Passover vacation, are you not? Eastern Passover. Okay. Um, the part of 
what is going on in this in this um, long self self reflection and uh, account, as he puts it later, of the growth of his own mind. That's what he says in book thirteen. Is well, as 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 I say, the plot is why can't I write? And the um, so he writes a long thing about not being able to write and how he got to this place. And um, the writing of it is also a way of getting to a place he hopes, he imagines, the happy ending should be that now he's worked out through, through this process of self-analysis, he's worked out um, what he needs, whatever it is he needs to work out, um, and has worked out what it means to be a writer. Something like that is also what's going on in The Intimations Ode. Uh, one way just to describe the intimations of it, but also the spookiness of nature in the prelude is, um, and I was thinking of this when you were um, talking about the things about the intimations of that that um, you were dubious about, Tafara, um, is that what Wordsworth does in the intimations of you could say is that he goes from registering a loss of a capacity to experience. That is, that he can no longer experience, not in the Blakean sense of experience, but in the sense of experiencing the power of nature or the beauty or the glory of, of the earth and every common sight. That he goes from a sense of a loss of capacity to experience to its reversal into the experience of loss itself. And the thing about loss is you can only um, know and experience what loss is if you lose. And so what he does is he does lose, and for him that starts out as pure loss, but then it turns into something like that estrangement that from the world, which at first was simply a feeling of everything becoming uninteresting to that estrangement itself becoming the most interesting thing, that such an estrangement was possible and that that estrangement was not only possible but was something that felt powerful. So you go from the loss of experience, and this is a general romantic trope, is that you go from the loss of experience to writing about the experience of loss. Yeah. So is that the just recompense of Tintern Abbey, or is that... Um, abundant recompense, abundant. not just recompense. So, which are different. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting um, mis... That I remembered it wrong. Yeah, because abundant, it's a really, really wonderful word, because it doesn't tell you whether it's enough, um, it could be, you know, generally it's a word of praise. You've made abundant amends for the bad things you've done. But abundant may not be enough. Um, abundant may be you've come part of the way and a lot more than I thought you would be able to do. But you haven't wholly or totally um, done a recompense for what's happened. Or it can mean more than enough. That is... Okay, so you um, shoplifted a lollipop 
but then you gave a bushel of lollipops back to the campus store. So you made abundant recompense, which is way more than anything you were accused of doing. Um, or it can mean just. That is, that uh, you, you um, did what was certainly enough. So not the stress on more than enough, but a stress on certainly enough. And it's not clear which of the three it is in Tinter and Abbey, nor is it supposed to be clear. That is, when he says, I would believe abundant recompense. Um, what there means, I want to believe. And um, the belief itself might be um, part of that abundance. But again, it's, it's not quite clear. But it's certainly the recompense part. The recompense is, is that new estrangement. Yeah. At, in exchange for seeing the celestial light. Yeah, it's, it's, it's instead of celestial light, it's sober coloring. The clouds um, do take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch over man's mortality. So the question is, is the prelude also a poem of that sort of recompense? And um, as I said before, when you see the word, if you trace the word, track the word home and its cognates um, and, and um, uh, compoundings in a word like homeless, in the prelude. Uh, the question is whether homelessness is a recompense for losing your home. And it's, you can see how it might be. And Wordsworth can certainly see how it might be. But there's still a question whether it is or not. Yeah. What does it mean for homelessness to be a recompense for losing your home? Well, in, in one way, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but in another way, it would be that it's something like Roy at the end of Blade Runner. Did you see Blade Runner? No. Um, well, at the end of Blade Runner, um, or it's not at the end of Blade Runner, it's when he's talking to Tyrell, um, and then he repeats it at the end of Blade Runner when he quotes Blake. So Roy is the replicant who was born in 2017. So we're not far from... He's two years old. Yeah, he's now two years old. Um, yeah, he was born in April of 2017, actually. Um, Happy birthday. Yeah. Um, it, it is... Um, he complains to his creator that he has a four-year lifespan... And his creator says, but think of all the things you get to see in those four years. And so the, the idea is, uh, I think Tyrell actually says this, the candle that burns half as long burns twice as bright. And so the, very, the recompense for the shortness of life is the shortness of life. That is, a long life is less intense than a short life. And that is what Tyrell is saying to Roy. And... Um, so that's one way of understanding a self-compensating loss. Another um, example that I really love is a Chinese landscape painter who said um, that, who, who did landscapes in, in, in ink and, and parchment. And um, he said it's true that no drawing can possibly compete with landscape um, in as far as landscape goes 
but it is also true that no landscape can possibly compete with drawing as far as drawing goes. So that, if, so that the idea that a drawing is secondary, that there's landscape and then there's an attempt somehow to show what a landscape looks like to people who haven't seen the landscape, is missing the point of landscape, uh, of the drawing of a pen and ink um, representation of a landscape, which is that the representation is, contains something that the original doesn't. And that's true of all art, that the representation is simply by being a representation is doing something much more intense than an original can do. An, an obvious example of this is Andy Warhol, where, um, where a, a Brillo box or a Campbell's soup label, which is nothing in reality, um, becomes stunning when Warhol does a representation of it. And the, but, but all Warhol um, is, is doing there is making a point that art always makes, which is that representation, there's something about representation and about the idea, I would again use the word thinking, the idea of um, the appearance of something in its absence which is contrary to um, naive views of the world, which is something is there and it appears, and it disappears be because it goes away. But in art, something only appears when the thing that it's representing is not there. That then becomes the appearance that exists in the work of art. The, um, Paul Clay said, art does not render what is visible but renders visible. So art doesn't show what is visible, it makes things visible that, you, that would otherwise be invisible. So if you ask, so what does art render visible? What does it make visible? You could say what it makes visible is absence, um, is the absence of what is visible. And, and it, that is something that can only belong to representation. This is an anti-Platonic idea. I was, that's what I was going ask because if word does if you claim Wordsworth holds this view, mm -hmm. is that his own answer to his platonic imagining? Yeah, but it would be a way of saying, and I think this is what what you'll find in Frost's poems, Frost's poem, Birches as well, um, where he says he prefers um, this earth to any possible heaven, and um, I think Wordsworth does too. That's, that's um, though nothing will bring back the, um, the hour of splendor in the grass of glory in the flower. That is that it's not that in some future immortal life what I experienced in childhood will find perfection. It's that the experience in its utter absence, the memory of the experience, in its absence, the idea of the experience as something that can, that is absent, that can never return, intensifies, through the intensity of the absence, it intensifies the, not the experience itself, but intensifies what the 
contours and lineaments of the experience are communicating. So that, you know, I mean, lots of everyday experiences of nostalgia work that way. Uh, William Empson summarizes Proust as, you know, 3,300 page novel, and then Empson summarizes it as um, everything goes away, and the only salvation that there is in life or that there can ever be is sometimes when you are in one place or looking at one thing or seeing one person or um, having one experience, it makes you think of another place or another thing or another person or another experience. And then when you are thinking of both of them at once, um, there's a way in which you feel that you have transcended time. And it's not that you've transcended time because you've gone back to a place, because you've returned to Tintern Abbey, or because you've returned home to wherever home is. But it's in, the, it's in an irreducible doubleness. That's the incumbent or the surface of past time moment in the prelude. It's the irreducibility of the doubleness that um, gives you a sense of there's no place where you can simply feel this is how things are and how they should be. But that means there's always an elsewhere which for Wordsworth is something uncanny, which is um, what nature is when nature is perceived by a person who thinks or feels that he should be or was part of nature, but now isn't anymore. And that the, the experience of separation is also an experience of connection. But it's not that, oh, separation really means connection. It's that any connection really means separation. That the only ultimate connection there is is that of separation, of otherness, of um, feeling that there's something that you are other than, or that is other than you, rather than simply being self-coincident with um, nature as the here and now and the present. Yeah. Um, I forgot the philosopher's last name, but his first name is Henri. Bergson? Yes. And he said, some, well, I was reading a, uh, something about him, and he so a really interesting statement he said about the elusiveness of the present. Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, there's like, the present is like this ungraspable yeah. thing, and it's like the past is eating the future. Mm -hmm. Have you read The Langoliers? No. Um, if you want a Stephen King horror novel about that, which is really good, uh -huh. The Langoliers. Okay. But yeah, I just thought it was a really cool concept, because, I mean, it's true, like, what is the present? Like, it's not... Fixed, yeah. You know, like there's always like a going. It's directional. It's almost like there's we're going somewhere, and yeah. it's like if we're not, then we're dead. Yeah. So that's right. And so a way maybe to put this now in Wordsworth is to say that um, 
I now, so this, this might be a little bit complex, but I don't, I, I don't think it's too complex. I now have an experience of then, which is no longer, um, uh, no, no longer um, connected or no longer coincident with now. There's a gap or a discrepancy between now and then. And I know that there's this discrepancy, and I miss then. I know there's this discrepancy with then, because when I look at nature now, I'm unmoved by nature. So there you get a very interesting difference, you could say, between what should look like an analogy. I am to the past, or I am separated from the past, as I am separated from nature. How do I know that I am separated from the past? Because I feel the separation from nature, but in the past, I didn't feel a separation. Okay, so that's the, that's, the, um, that's the beginning analogy that he's giving. I'm separated from nature. In the past, I wasn't. Therefore, I'm also separated from the past. Oh, cool. But, but, but thinking that way brings... Yeah, but, yeah, but when I think about the past, I realize that what I miss is the experience of a strange and spooky separation from nature that I had in the past. And therefore, what I am missing is not a time which I mistakenly imagined in which I was at one with nature. What I'm missing is a time when I felt this spooky separation from nature. And now I'm not thinking about that anymore, so I'm separated from that time of separation. But if I'm separated from that time of separation, what that means is I'm actually experiencing the separation that I'm missing because I'm separated from it. And when I realize that, that my relation to the past is like the past that I'm missing, that in its very unlikeness, it's like it, then the spookiness that I think I'm missing turns out to be a spookiness that is even deeper now than it was before. And that spookiness is that I can recall it and be um, not overwhelmed by it, but feel misgivings. And that somehow those blank misgivings, that was at the heart of my relationship to nature anyhow. And I had wrongly thought that it was a passion, that it was glad animal spirits. But in fact, what was even deeper than those glad animal spirits was this, this um, kind of blankness, um, call it solitude or blank desertion, um, as he puts it in the prelude, this kind of blankness that um, turns out is still in the embers and can therefore still be an occasion for joy or joy that in our embers is something that doth live. And where do I go most to meditate on this feeling or to immerse myself 
in it, well, to thought. Um, remember um, uh, Simon Lee, um, that if you had such joys as gentle thought can bring, um, you would find a tale in everything. So this is, again, what thought can do. But what is thought for Wordsworth? Well, it's writing poetry. So that what he thinks about is composition. Not that he thinks about, oh, what word rhymes with dove? Um, <laughs> but that he thinks about, what? A very large bird just hit a turkey. A oh, not a dove? Oh, did he hit a window? Oh, really? It's a turkey. Oh, there is. They can actually break windows. That was a very loud noise. Are they in here? No, oh, it looks pretty injured. Spooky. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't think that bird is in good shape. It's hiding. It's like hiding in a corner. Yeah. Did he hit the window? Yeah, he like hit the window, like wings out, like everything's crazy. <laughs> I'm talking about like, all like, the I think there's a video. I think there's a video online of a, of a turkey crashing through a snowball. Oh, he's he's because of course he's oh, no. oh my god, there's like a vulture in the tree above it now. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're like, right. Hey, oh, Jesus. Oh, that's Do awesome. you know that? The see, this is why Wordsworth hates nature. God damn it. <laughs> I can't see anything. I love you. I can't see the vulture. You know that famous photograph oh, of the vulture? <laughs> of the vulture that's like okay. surrounding this girl who's, who's starving? Oh, there's a famous photograph. Oh, yeah. oh, is he okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no that bird is not going to live. No. Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Oh, there it is. I just fell off. No, I'm the only one that didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, you oh, don't want to see it. Okay. <laughs> Should we have a class outside? Oh, you mean closer to the closer to death? <laughs> not today. <laughs> no, since we're talking about nature. I, yeah, I'm going to quote you Marguerite Duras, the great writer Marguerite Duras. Oh, this is, we should pull the blinds down. It's horrifying. Aren't you horrified? I don't see it. <laughs> You're lucky. You don't yeah. want to see it. I don't want to see it. You're right. <laughs> you really don't. Yeah. I saw a chipmunk once. I uh, was in, like, a uh, hawk had it, and the hawk dropped it, and they looked at it, and I'm like, oh, I thought like, it was dead, but then I sat under this tree for, like, five minutes, and after, it was just, like, pretending to be dead. It just, like, froze for, like, ten minutes, and then it ran away. And so it got away from the hawk? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was, like, quite nice. Well, you're paid back for it now. Hmm? You're paid back for it now. I don't know, maybe it, it'll... Maybe it's just um, playing dead to hide from the window. Yeah. <laughs> well, it served its life. The intensity of its. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's so spooky. It is. <laughs> it's death. It's an actual car play. Anywho, I never say that. 
<laughs> so it's by thinking about poetry and writing poetry that Wordsworth can experience the the estrangement that he's at first experiencing as purely negative <coughs> or as pure loss um, and uh, not as not as pure capital L loss, but simply as something that is um, taken away. And instead, what he's given is um, a sense of nature, what nature is like when it's not a place for the human. What nature is like when for a human to be interacting with nature is um, to be interacting or to be in a place where the human is not at home. And since the only place in the universe where the human should be at home is in nature, everything else being in some sense or other a prison, then if the human is not at home in nature, then there's a sense in which it's it's human destiny to be homeless. Um, and it's a kind of um, understanding of that destiny and a kind of, you don't want to call it affirmation. There are people who do want to call it affirmation. Um, Maybe Emerson, maybe Nietzsche, who loved Emerson. But I think in Wordsworth it's it's not the same thing as affirmation. But it is that um, thoughts that do lie for too deep for tears, um, getting to that depth, which is even sadder than tears, or sadness wouldn't be the quite, quite the right word, because um, tears and sadness go together. But if you go too deep for tears, it's um, getting to a place, a, a substrate, which is beyond even that of sadness. So that none of our usual emotional words, um, which direct us in the right direction only for a time until we pass um, the places to which the emotions are directing us, um, that's where, that's the spooky place where Wordsworth ends up going. So the simple idea is that nature used to be spooky and I used to be um, in sync with the spookiness of nature, but if you're in sync with the spookiness of nature in a, what in a strange paradox you're not in sync with it because the spookiness of nature is that you can't be in sync with it that 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 being in sync means you're not getting it and where he really gets it then is when he's no longer in sync with it and it's in memory that he can um, think about the giant forms that do not live like living men, not as like just giants that are after him or monsters, but as something that is indifferent to, has nothing to do with giants and monsters. Yeah. Um, I forgot. I think it's Hegel. You said something about, I'm really bad with but he said something about like the self and an object 
something about volition? Um, <laughs> that could be. That could be a lot. <laughs> yeah, but the, there's the world is will and representation. Is that what you're thinking yeah, about? Yeah, so it's like That's the Schopenhauer. self is who? Schopenhauer. No, but the, the idea is like the self only becomes, like exists when it sort of projects itself onto an object. Okay, that, yeah, that could be Hegel. Yeah. Um, that could be the master-slave dialectic. So it's like, well, with, with nature, it's like, the point isn't to be in sync with it. Yeah. It's to project yourself yeah. onto it. Yeah. So that both of you, like you and nature, are like whole. Yeah. Think. Yeah. Um, except I'm not sure that, that the word whole is, the, is ultimately the right word for yeah, words. Yeah. But, um, but it's... A way of putting this is to say that there is, in Hegel, the great idea, um, as some of you will know, is that, there, that for everything there's its opposite. And that's thesis and antithesis is the standard way of talking about that. That for everything there is its opposite. But then those opposites can come together into a larger unity. And the moment that they come together into a larger unity is a kind of achievement and a kind of um, culmination of things. And that this leads to a spiral. That is, that when you get the larger unity, you then get the opposite of that larger unity as well, which then combines into a still larger unity um, after that. So that's the idea of... Um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And every synthesis becomes a new thesis which gives rise to a new antithesis which then gives rise to a higher synthesis until you hit the absolute. It's like atoms. Yeah. Small atoms, like after the Big Bang. Yeah, yeah. Attracting each other. Yeah, yeah. And coming together. Yeah, making planets and stars. Yeah. Um, so, um, but I think think that what risks being lost in that and what a lot of Hegelianly inspired but ultimately anti-Hegelian thinkers have thought is that it's the, the place of estrangement that gets lost, that in Hegel is, is purely negative, that when things are um, not synthesized, then that's simply a, um, a waiting period until they get to be synthesized. And it's that negativeness is for Wordsworth um, the, the homelessness or strangeness that for him is ultimately the most powerful aspect of nature. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that this is, this is oh, I brought the wrong book. Um, that this is uh, what to pay attention to in Wordsworth. It, I mean, what he says is um, that nature, um, that he himself was ministered by nature in beauty and in fear. And beauty would be, oh yes, it's so beautiful, it's so lovely, and um, I love nature, and that's great. And at the end of Tintern Abbey, that's what Dorothy, my sister, will feel about nature, is only its beauty, which is the most important part of it. Um, but 
um, nature ministered to me in fear as well. And the fear is actually um, what he is, in some sense, valuing much later. What I wanted us to look, I, I'm sure I can get up on my um, iPad, at the Simplon Pass episode in book six. And... Um, text. Deja vu is not going to help. Here we go. Um, I think. Yes. Oh, is this someone just publishing their own ideas? Um, let's just see. Or maybe this will work. Um, yeah, so go to book six, and um, so most of you have gotten this far? Yes. Okay. And um, let's, we, this is uh, what we were talking about a little bit um, last week. Um, started around line 491. Um, so this is uh, the, the trip when they're um, going to, they're crossing the Alps and heading for Italy. Um, yet still in me mingling with these delights, that is, um, uh, among these solitudes sublime and sober posies of funereal flowers, culled from the gardens of the Lady Sorrow, uh, did sweeten many meditative hour. Um, so, and this is, I think, yeah, actually, let's go a little bit earlier because it's worth seeing what it is that he's not doing here. So, whate'er in this wide circuit we beheld or heard was fitted to our unripe state of intellect and heart. So, there they are young. Um, their state of intellect and heart is still unripe. You know, they're undergrads, what do you expect? Um, <laughs> by simple strains of feeling, the pure breath of real life, we were not left untouched. With such a book before our eyes, we could not choose but read a frequent lesson of sound tenderness, the universal lesson of mankind, the truth of young and old. Nor, side by side, pacing two brother pilgrims or alone, each with his humor, could we fail to abound, craft this, which hath been hinted at before, in dreams and fictions, pensively composed. Um, dejection taken up for pleasure's sake. So what does that line mean? You are um you're enjoying your sadness. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the, yeah, that, that they're writing um, that is that uh, we have we have pensively composed dreams and fictions. This is a craft that we had. So we, what does pensively mean? Thinking. Yeah, thinkingly. He's thinking again. Yeah, like pansy, pens pensively, pensé. Um, so we would think about dreams and fictions, and we would take it take dejection up for pleasure's sake. How many of you have read Frankenstein? Um, oh, well, the rest of you should. <coughs> Over the weekend, in addition to the prelude. That's a lot to... Oh, right. <laughs> you have a break. You have a long <laughs> break. Um, so, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, she's, she was married to Percy Shelley. Um, and in Frankenstein, uh, there's a character based on Shelley. Uh, there's also a character based on Coleridge. Really? Yeah. Is it the sister who was adopted? No, um, that could be a Coleridge character, but the character based on Shelley is Henry Clerval, and probably Frankenstein himself is based on Coleridge. Victor Frankenstein, right? That's yeah. what I was going to guess, because she hated Shelley, right? So, <laughs> Not Shelley, I mean she hated Coleridge, right? Um, I don't know that she hated Coleridge. Oh, uh, wait, didn't you say something like Coleridge? She said Coleridge is completely lost. No, no, Wordsworth, Wordsworth. Uh, he has become a slave. <laughs> Never mind. It was. But at any rate. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, Victor Frankenstein at one point quotes Coleridge. Um, <laughs> so, um, even though he's supposed to be a Swiss student, and presumably the quotation in the original would have been in German, um, and no doubt the. You know the, the way the monster learns to read? Do people know this uh, about? Overhearing Goethe being decided? And Paradise Lost. Um, Paradise Lost is, is, is his, his book of ABCs. Um, and it also, it's what he, he thinks it's history, so he thinks this is what the world is really like. Um, but the, um, what happened was she, she wrote this novel when she was um, uh, 19, and, or published it when she was 19. And um, then... Uh, a few years later, Shelley died. Her husband died, and um, some of her children had died. The monster is possibly based on one of her children, who was born with jaundice and died <coughs> shortly thereafter. Um, the monster has yellow eyes, and the those yellow eyes—the place she would have seen that in nature—is in her premature child, who would have been jaundiced. Um, and jaundice means turned yellow. Um, same word as hyacinth, uh, yellow flower. And so the... Um, sorry? You mean jonquil? Um, jonquil, yeah. It, it's, uh, I, hyacinth is sometimes used to mean yellow. They're different colored hyacinths. Um, yellow was not a named color in England, I think, till the 18th century or so. Uh, no, 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 it's in Shakespeare. My way of life is formed to the seer, the yellow leaf. At any rate, um, no, orange wasn't a named color until the 18th century. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And I think maybe hyacinth is orange, was the older name for orange. But I think it is, it is etymologically related to, to jaundice. Um, I could be wrong. Um, in Jean, like in French, yellow is jaune. Jaune, yeah. right. Um, so, the, yeah, so they're definitely related. Um, 
And if you're born prematurely, um, you have too much bilirubin in your bloodstream, and um, it causes jaundice, which is, say, turns your skin and the whites of your eyes yellow. And when Victor Frankenstein first sees the monster, he sees the monster's yellow eyes, which completely freak him out, but which seem to be Mary Shelley remembering seeing her premature child. Oh, and that makes sense because he created yeah. the monster and she created her child. Exactly. So, um, within the next, um, that was 1816, so within the next six years, many people that she loved would die. And then when Frankenstein was republished in, in a later edition in 1831, she, re, she, wrote a, she revised it and she wrote a new preface for it. And what she said, a very powerful moment in the preface, is she says to the book, she says farewell to her hideous progeny, as she calls it. Um, and she says it, it is um, the, the product of a time in, uh, in my life um, when death and grief were but words which found no true echo in my heart. And so it's frequently the case that some of the greatest poetry of mourning, of sadness, of loss, is written by people when they're young and when they actually haven't had the experience that the poems are so great at describing. And the, the greatness of the description is partly that people can treat it as fictional and therefore um, be much more intense about it because they're not describing their own actual experience, they're trying to um, gin up, um, trying, trying to, to charge up um, a sense of, of negative power or of, or of um, pessimistic power that is not something that they are feeling firsthand. And then when they get older, they're amazed by how, how accurate they were at describing things they'd never felt. And this is a common, um, this, this, is, this is commonly observed both by the writers themselves and by other people, that um, certain kinds of very great, dark, grim literature is written by people who um, can write it because in a way they're immune to it because they haven't yet experience that darkness and grimness in themselves. And later on, when they do experience that darkness and grimness in themselves, they're surprised by what it was they thought they could bear. Uh, there's a famous midrash about uh, Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, which is um, both books of the Bible supposedly written by Solomon. And the standard view is that Solomon, Song of Songs, you know, is the most obscene book in the Bible, and it's all about sex between the woman who is the speaker of the Song of Songs and the man that she's in love with, and, you know, it's let, let him kiss me with the kisses or kisses of his mouth. And, um, sorry? Well, that's the, that would be, partly be the point. Um, and, um, it's, it's for a book that you can find in a church or a synagogue, it is uh, pretty risque. They read it um, in Shul. I forget when it is, but they do read it 
Oh yeah. No, no, it's it's a half Torah. Not that anybody really understands it. Yeah. But no, but it's a it's a it's a song it's a it's a song celebrating erotic contact, and um, and it's great, and um, some people think it's Solomon as a young man possibly writing it for the Queen of Sheba, but that it's Solomon as a young man celebrating life, and then there's Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, which is the grimmest book in the Bible, the only book in the Bible to end with the word evil. So if you actually look at it in a Hebrew Bible. What you will find is the second to last verse is reprinted after the last verse because they didn't want they don't want a book ending with the word evil. So what they do is they is that they just have a kind of grace note reprinting of the second to last verse, which you're not supposed to read and which isn't um, necessary and it's certainly not part of it. But that way, evil is not the last word. And um, you all know what Ecclesiastes is, right? Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And a famous line from it, the sun also rises and the sun also setteth. Yeah, and hasteneth to the place where he arises again and there is nothing new under the sun. So Ecclesiastes is um, a very grim book which basically says all of life is vanity. And so the standard um, account of the life of Solomon is that as a young man, he was all optimistic and wrote Song of Songs. And then as an old man, he saw the truth and what life was really like, and he wrote Ecclesiastes, that the scales had fallen from his eyes. Um, but there's a midrash that is a um, legendary story or account with some authority, but it's not clear um, how 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 to read it, but there's basically a suggestion within the Hebrew tradition that that's exactly wrong. That Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes when he was a cynical young man who thought that life was um, empty and poor, or to quote Hobbes, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Um, to quote Hobbes's famous adjectives about life, um, and that as an old man, he wrote Song of Songs because he had. Um, outgrown the adolescent grimness of Ecclesiastes. And that, um, that ordering of things is a possible ordering of things that Wordsworth is describing here when he says, there we were doing this amazing trip. And um, so in dreams and fictions, pensively composed... Um, we didn't fail to abound in dreams and fictions pensively composed. Dejection taken up for pleasure's sake, because it was fun to say it's all vanity, it's all nothingness. Um, well, since, since you're getting a whole or a partial sense of the whole era, um, Shelley's... Um, um, friend and Byron's friend Thomas Love Peacock uh, who's a wonderful poet do you know him? I, I feel like I do um, he, has a, he has a poem called The War Song of Dinas Barr um, which is a Welsh name which begins it, it's about a raid and it begins the mountain sheep were sweeter but the valley sheep were fatter we therefore deemed it meeter to carry off the latter um, so they're going for the valley sheep because they're fatter, 
Uh, just those rhymes are great. The mountain sheep are sweet, were sweeter, but the valley sheep were fatter, and we therefore deemed it neater, more appropriate, to carry off the latter. Um, so he's a friend of um, Shelley's and Byron's, and he wrote a novel about them, a parody of them, um, called Nightmare Abbey, in which they spend, Shelley and Byron are spending the weekend there, and then they're leaving, and the Byron character says farewell to his hosts, as he puts it, he says that he will remember um, this, this uh, weekend with all the joy that his lacerated heart is still capable of feeling. So he's the kind of person who says, you know, just try that on your friends sometime. Um, after, after you have dinner with them, say you, you'll just, you'll remember this dinner with all the joy your lacerated heart is still capable of feeling. Um, so that's what Peacock was kind of parodying in his friends Byron and Shelley. So um, that's what Wordsworth is describing here, that we took dejection up for pleasure's sake um, and gilded sympathies, the willow wreath even among those solitudes sublime and sober posies of funereal flowers called from the gardens of the lady's sorrow did sweeten many a meditative hour. So it was a joy and a pleasure. Here we are in these sublime solitudes but what we're doing is we're picking up um, this, these um, flowers of sorrow rather than looking around us. Yet, still in me, mingling with these delights was something of stern mood, an under-thirst of vigor, never utterly asleep. So another thing worth... Uh -huh. Um, noticing in Wordsworth is the way he will sometimes use under as a prefix. So an underthirst of vigor. It's an almost opaque phrase. We both know what it means and don't. But it's something underneath everything else. Never utterly asleep. And then he says, far different dejection once was mine. So not dejection taken up for pleasure's sake, but far different dejection once was mine. A deep and genuine sadness then I felt. The circumstances I will here relate even as they were. Upturning with a band of travelers from the valet we had clomb along the roads that lead to Italy a length of hours, making of these our guides did we advance, and having reached the inn, sorry, and having reached an inn among the mountains, we together ate our noon's repast, from which the travelers rose, leaving us at the board. So they're trying to get to Italy from Valais, they follow these travelers, they eat at an inn. Ere long we followed, descending by the beaten road that led right to a rivulet's edge, and there broke off. So they get to this road that leads to a small brook and then stops. The only track now visible was one upon the further side, right opposite and up a lofty mountain. This we took after a little scruple and short pause and climbed with eagerness, though not at length without surprise and some anxiety on finding that we did not overtake our comrades gone before. So they're following these travelers um, who don't have a bumper sticker saying, don't follow me, I'm lost too. Um, they're following these travelers um, 
and they don't know where they've gone, and now they're worried. By fortunate chance, while every moment now increased our doubts, a peasant met us. And from him we learned that to the place which had perplexed us first we must descend, and there should find the road which in the stony channel of the stream lay a few steps, and then along its banks. And further, that thenceforward all our course was downward with the current of that stream. So they crossed the stream when they should have just walked downstream a little bit and picked up the path. Luckily they met a peasant who directed them the right way, and so they go back to the stream. And the crucial thing is that thenceforth, Henceforward, all our course was downwards with the current of that stream. So why did they find that hard to believe? Hard of belief, we questioned him again. Why is that hard to believe that they're going to be going downwards? They're trying to climb the mountain. They're trying to cross the Alps. And if the stream is going downwards, if that's the right direction, that means they've crossed the divide. Do you guys know what the term continental divide means? Or great divide? Um, so there are places, it is in any um, place surrounded by water, it's the place where when it rains, um, water will, depending on where it lands, even to the millimeter on where a drop of rain lands, um, that rain will, in the U.S., will drain to the Pacific or to the Gulf of Mexico or to the Atlantic. So the continental divide is in Colorado, and there, if it rains in Colorado, some of the water will eventually get to the Gulf of Mexico, um, some of it will eventually get to the Atlantic, and some of it will get to the Pacific, and it depends on whether it hits this inch or this inch of land, because that's the, the height of the land. Um, it's a topographical um, concept, but it's but a true one. and. Um, if you if you are at a place where all um, where everything goes downstream, if you're upstream of everything, then you are at a place where you can um, go towards any drainage in the um, whole continent. And so there they are, and the water's going downhill, which means that they've crossed the Great Divide, and the stream is now heading towards the Mediterranean. Um, they've crossed the divide and it's heading towards the Mediterranean or perhaps towards the Italian lakes, which will eventually drain into the Mediterranean or into the Aegean Sea. So they can't believe it. Hard of belief, we questioned him again, and all the answers which the man returned to our inquiries in their sense and substance translated by the feelings which we had ended in this, that we had crossed the Alps. So that is the great genuine dejection. They crossed the Alps and didn't know it. He then, in an odd little paragraph, has what is now taken to be an interjection. That writing this, he suddenly starts writing about writing. Imagination lifting up itself before the eye and progress of my song like an unfathered vapor. Here that power in all the might of its endowments came athwart me. So the question is, is this happening to him on the road, or is it happening to him as he's writing? I was lost, as in a cloud, halted, without a struggle to break through, and now, re now recovering to my soul, I say, I recognize thy glory. In such strength of usurpation, in such visitings of awful promise, when the light of sense goes out and flashes that have shown us the invisible world, 
doth greatness make abode. Their harbors, whether we be young or old, our destiny, our nature, and our home is with infinitude and only there. With hope it is, hope that can never die, effort and expectation and desire, and something evermore about to be. The mind beneath such banners militant thinks not of spoils or trophies, nor of aught that may attest its prowess, blessed in thoughts that are their own perfection and reward, strong in itself and in the access of joy which hides it like the overflowing Nile. So they cross the Alps and suddenly he just has a flash of a memory of this moment of extreme dejection. And that is like an oh joy that in our empress is something that doth live moment. That turns into a loss. I was lost um, without an effort to break through. I was lost as in a cloud, halted without a struggle to break through. And that's the moment of joy. Then, it's a very odd moment. I mean, I'm rushing through this, but no one really knows what to make of that first paragraph. Um, and something is going on there, starting with line 528. Then he's back to where he was. The dull and heavy slackening which ensued upon those tidings by the peasant given was soon dislodged. So why do we pick it up from here on Wednesday? What is it for? Um... Uh, crosswise, not parallel to, but but um, crosswise. So when you thwart something, oh shit! They're gonna call.